Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabeg, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. On the last episode of Solidarity Winnipeg podcast, we talked about why eco-socialism is necessary, possible, and worth fighting for. But that brings us to the question of, well, so you're an eco-socialist in Winnipeg or somewhere else in Canada today. What do you do? That's a huge question. There's lots to talk about. And to join us to talk about some of it, we've got uh, today Brian McDougall, who's based in Ottawa, although currently in B.C. Uh, Brian's a longtime socialist and labor activist. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much. Yeah, Hi, Brian. And then also something else we often do when we have this podcast is everybody who's here, we do a little go around just so all of our voices register as people who are here in the audio world. So I'm Teddy. And who else is here with me today? I'm Posey. I'm John. So I've got the first question to ask you, Brian. And with any of the questions, obviously, feel free to take it wherever you think is is the most the best place to take it. Um, but here's the one that I that I have for you. So much of what needs to happen is working with other people, and the question I have, Brian, is about when we're trying to work with other people as eco socialists. What kind of common ground is enough? Is it like about having a common enemy, a common strategy, a common set of tactics, a common long-term goal? Like there's just so many ways that people can have similarities and differences. And I'm just wondering if you have anything you want to say about what kind of common ground is enough when thinking of doing um, the work that organizers should be doing. Well, that's a really interesting question. And um, working in eco-socialist uh, circles, um, you get a wide range of opinions on that kind of question. But based on a little bit of experience I've had working around uh, climate justice groups in Ottawa, I would say that um, you want to try to work with um, people who are at least committed to activity and at least committed to some kind of ongoing discussion and evaluation of the initiatives they undertake. Uh, because of course, there are a lot of organizations 
which do the same thing over and over and over again, draw virtually no lessons from the experience that they are having, and as a consequence, never really grow. Similarly, there are many organizations, and sometimes these two problems overlap. Um, there are many organizations where there isn't uh, sufficient um, debate and argument um, and uh, evaluation of differing alternatives and different points of view to ensure that the members of that particular organization are, again, learning something um, and helping to contribute to an organization that learns as it proceeds. So when you encounter an organization that's not learning, um, that uh, seems to be incapable of learning because they don't want to explore alternative ideas or they're somehow congenitally incapable of evaluating the experience they initiate in a way which will allow them to learn, then you know you're in an organization that has a very limited future. Um, so that would be one lesson uh, that I would draw from, from the experience I've had. But, you know, the same point can be made about organizations active in uh, many different political spheres around many different issues. Well, I'm happy to uh, you know, clarify or comment any on any aspect of that further if you if you want to pursue it. Yeah, thanks. That's I I really like how you answered that because um, I don't think I was framing the question that way, but I think that that's like a very as soon as you were saying it, I was thinking like, wow, that's like very useful. It makes a lot of sense. And like one of the things you said about um, how to like kind of see if an organization is learning or not learning. Like you kind of described one example would be if it just keeps doing the same thing again and again. Um, do you, are there any other kind of things that come to mind, like really like off the top of your head that also are kind of indications of a non-learning organization? Because I'm, I'm guessing that most or maybe many organizations might think that they're learning organizations and it might right. take some experience to kind of like really assess that. So what do you think about that? Well, let me try to concretize things a little bit because I spoke rather abstractly. So let me tell you a little bit, for example, about my experience with Extinction Rebellion. Uh, so in the um, early spring of 2019, after I returned to Canada, when Extinction Rebellion had started up in the, the, the few months prior to that, I joined the group in Ottawa. And it became abundantly clear to me over the course of the next six to eight months um, that they were not an organization that was capable of really learning from the experience that was going on, from what was going on around them and from the experience that they were having as a, as a collective group of people. Um, so let me give you just one example. Uh, in Ottawa, as in many Canadian cities, Climate justice movements have been relatively weak and largely incapable of, of mobilizing many people up until the last two years. Um, in Ottawa, Extinction Rebellion was very active, and I was a member of it, in the run-up run to the climate strike, which happened in September 2019. Uh, the climate strike in Ottawa had about 35,000 people involved in it. 
which far exceeded anybody's estimate of what was possible, let alone what was likely. Um, and what was really telling about the inadequacies of Extinction Rebellion was that not only were they unprepared for that, we all were unprepared for, for the actual turnout, but in the aftermath of that event and that experience, they proved incredibly resistant to actually puzzling through what had just happened and more importantly, trying to determine how best to reach out to those 35,000 people who had voted with their feet and who were not members of any organization, Extinction Rebellion or anything else. So that was a sure sign of the limitations of that particular organization. If they couldn't anticipate, and more importantly, if they couldn't respond to a dramatic change in, in the real circumstances in which they were operating, um, then there were going to be very serious limitations on the ability of that organization to grow and to continue to reach out to people. Um, so I know I'm kind of harping on the point that I made the first time, but um, you know, perhaps with a little bit more of a concrete example um, that that will help you a bit. Yeah, thanks. That's that's great. I could keep asking you tons of questions, but just to be more fair and to pass it around in our amount of time. I'll pass it on to John sure. next, who has got the next question. But thanks so much for that answer. And later when we all go and discuss, I know we're going to have stuff we can discuss and reflect on what you're saying there. So thanks. Hi, Brian. I know you've been, you've had a lot of union organizing experience. And I was greatly uh, radicalized by uh, conditions in my, in my workplace. Like, what would you see as the best role of, like, uh, of a socialist or radical within a union that has uh, somewhat more conservative uh, leadership? Yeah, well, very good question. And we could, as you know, talk about this for a great deal of time. Uh, so much of what happens in unions is kind of independent of the plans or the best designs of individual or small groups of socialists because we're extraordinarily dependent upon the broader context of the class struggle. So I've been involved in one way or another in the labor movement for, for a long time, over 40 years. Um, and during the course of that period of time, I've never personally gone on strike. Um, not because I didn't want to, not because I didn't campaign for it, not because I didn't argue or organize for it, uh, but simply because uh, the circumstances that determine whether or not a large group of people end up on strike are well beyond the control of uh, one individual or a relatively small group. Now, of course, these days, socialists in workplaces tend to find themselves as either lone individuals or very small groups, very small caucuses. And it's tremendously important. Um, for people to organize in the workforce, um, in the workplace, not just as socialists, but as kind of radicals on the left, people favoring, um, you know, just a few basic principles, more democracy, uh, more accountability of the leadership, um, more commitment to 
um, some kind of well-developed, well-worked-out strategy, uh, more um, commitment to evaluating the success or failure of activities. Oftentimes in unions, um, there's a discussion about what to do, then people go out and do it. And there's never really a full um, appraisal of what worked and what didn't work. Again, I'm harping back to the earlier theme of a learning organization. Um, and uh, also um, a recognition that there's a constant need for internal discussion that's not just about the fine points of the union uh, contract or the union's constitution, but also political discussion about broader kinds of societal issues that are of interest to um, union members. So those are all things that um, uh, an individual or small groups of socialists or radicals in union locals uh, can do regardless of the, of the ups and downs of the broader class struggle, or regardless of the ups and downs of the situation in their particular uh, workforce. But, um, you know, I guess I can only say that uh, uh, you, ha you have to play the long game in a union or a union local because uh, try as you might, you will never be able to predict in advance which particular little campaign that you initiate or participate in, which particular issue that management provokes um, is actually going to blow up into the kind of struggle that you want. Um, so you got to be there all the time. You've got to participate. Um, you've got to be patient as hell. You've got to make sure that uh, as uh, things go up and down, that you uh, praise the people you work with. Um, that you argue with them, but patiently um, and comradely. And you got to uh, try to prevent people from self-destructing as activists uh, because it is, you have to be in there for the long haul. Um, and as I said, you know, you can't really predict in advance. So you might, as in your case, you might be an activist for a decade and never, never really have a chance to take a qualitative step forward in terms of getting all the membership out on strike. Um, but, uh, you know, inevitably that will, uh, there will be confrontations. It's just that we can, can't predict them in advance. So um, I think that uh, as long as you're committed to organizing with small groups of people and using those principles, more democracy, more accountability, strategy, evaluation of successes and failures, um, recognizing the need for political education, uh, and so on, then you'll put yourself in a better position to take advantage of whatever openings come along. I'll, I'll stop there. That's already a lot of... Yeah, that's stuff. awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great stuff to, to think about. Thanks, Brian. Um, I'm going to... I think Posey has the next question, but uh, <laughs> who knows? We might run out of time, but if there's enough time, maybe I'll have a follow-up question. I don't know. Thanks. Yeah. Great. It's my, my question is along, in a great way, the same themes you've been addressing thus far, Brian, um, about you know learning from actions that you've been a part of and maybe sharing some of that wisdom with us. So in 2011, you participated in a campaign 
in response to massive cuts to the public service by the Harper government. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that experience and what, from your perspective, was successful in that? What was something you maybe do differently? Um, you know, any wisdom you could share with us would be great. Sure. So let me give you a little bit of context. Um, at the time, 2011, I was working in the federal public service, which is a kind of a complex uh, beast as far as employment goes. There are many different unions. There's many different categories of workers and so on. The prime minister of the day, Harper, um, decided that in the wake of the 2008-2009 financial crisis, they were going to start cutting jobs in the federal public service. So they would ultimately cut about 25 to 30,000 uh, jobs. And as part of that process, in the government department that I worked in, they determined that people who were in the same job category, uh, the same, uh, like the same type of employment, uh, but at two different levels, level seven and level eight, um, that about 150 of them would be reduced in numbers to about half that number. And that um, all of the people in level seven and level eight would have to compete for positions at level seven. So level eight, level eight was being eliminated. People at level eight positions were being pushed down to level seven. So that meant half of the people were losing a promotion that they had gained in at some previous point in time. And the other half were being forced to compete for their positions against their bosses because the level sevens reported to the level eights. So there you have a uh, situation which is tailor-made to uh, prevent any kind of unified response because you have two groups who seem to have diametrically opposed interests. And indeed, um, as a union activist, uh, myself and other people who were in the same department spoke to our union, a profoundly conservative union, about the, the way to respond to that. And their advice was there's no um, community of interest between those two groups. So just forget it. There's nothing we can do. Um, and our response was exactly the opposite. Um, there was a community of interest. It had to be built. It had to be expressed. It had to be um, uh, explained to people that there was a possibility of uh, unified action against an unjust measure. Um, and so despite the, uh, the advice and the warning and the direction from our union, we proceeded to build a campaign um, that unified um, people at both the level seven and level eight. And that campaign took, uh, took on some very interesting dimensions in the workplace. So we had um, meetings inside the workplace during work hours, um, some of which lasted hours uh, at a time to debate what was going on and how best to respond. Um, and ultimately, we were able to um, develop a petition which was directed towards management in opposition to what they were doing. And we were able to get a little bit more than a third of the people affected uh, to sign it. Not everybody. There were profound weaknesses 
in the uh, you know in the in the campaign that we built in the sense that we weren't able to win everybody uh, over. But um, such was the uh, uh, the lack of precedent for anything comparable to that um, that we did uh, win a number of meetings with management. Management was forced to go before all of our members and explain themselves repeatedly. And they were publicly attacked and vilified from the floor of those those meetings and so on. It was a response that not only was not duplicated anywhere else in the public service during 2011, but it was a response that was unprecedented in terms of the history of the public service from what we knew. Ultimately, it failed. Ultimately, a whole bunch of people lost their jobs. There's more to it in terms of legal nonsense, but I won't I won't bother bother you with that. Nevertheless, out of it, um, a small group of uh, lefty activists in the union um, grew a little bit, became a little more confident and a little stronger. Um, unfortunately, uh, the decade since then hasn't given them much opportunity to. Uh, to build on that little bit of success that we had. Even though it was ultimately a defeat, we established and demonstrated the possibility to construct solidarity between two groups that everybody believed had completely and entirely different interests. So that was a significant experience for a number of uh, our activists and something that's that has stuck with them despite all of the uh, misery and defeat uh, in the decades since then. Great, thanks, Brian. That's the that's the story we're facing. A, I imagine a lot of cuts in our future, especially here in Manitoba. So good to learn from that. Um, John, do you want to give your follow up question about unions since we're still on that topic? Yeah, sure. Well, you mentioned. Well, I guess being a union activist is uh, is you need to play the long game. But I think being any sort of organizer or activist uh, at this point is uh, is about playing the long game because short-term gains are, well, like you were saying, unpredictable. Um, you never know what you can get, if you can get anything, and I guess hard to really like sustain, um, especially if you're in a workplace, you have to keep organizing because you have to keep going to work. Mm -hmm. uh, you may as well uh, try to get in some good work doing the real work as possible, as much as possible. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the best way for like a rank and file activist? What do you think is the best way for them to help their union or workplace like tie into some of the broader uh, the broader social struggles? Like with Solidarity Winnipeg, for example, we're not just socialists, we're eco-socialists, for example. Like what are some of the intersections between uh, workplace and union organizing and um, environmental organizing? And what is some what are ways that rank and file organizers can can do? Yeah, again, that's such a potentially broad subject. We could talk about that at great length, but I'll just I'll just take one example. Um, Although I'm now out of the workplace and retired uh, because I've spent many long years working with my uh, colleagues and comrades inside the public service, uh, uh, I, I continue to work with them. I continue to talk with them and uh, 
Uh, I mean, I've been involved in various campaigns that they've initiated since I left the workplace. So uh, a year ago, a little more than a year ago, so last uh, April, May, in the wake of the uh, onset of the pandemic, um, there was all kinds of discussion uh, among uh, a circle of sort of lefty union activists about how to respond to the government strategy with respect to the pandemic, the government can, you know, as an employer. Uh, and so we had all kinds of discussion about that uh, and tried, and I have to, I have to admit for various reasons, our effort uh, was uh, clearly a failure. Um, but anticipating uh, the possibility that the government would try to drive people back into the workplaces early, um, we tried to construct uh, the basis for a campaign um, that would force the government to make all kinds of innovations um, in terms of its uh, 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 contract and employment rules, and indeed in terms of the federal labor law with respect to um, the conditions, the health conditions under which uh, people work. So one of the things we were um, quite intent upon was um, dealing with that section of the labor law um, that gives people, quote unquote, a right to refuse unsafe work. Um, because obviously we, we believed that if the government was going to drive all of its workforce back into big, massive office towers, uh, the possibility for the pandemic to uh, uh, to affect many public service employees was uh, was going to be greatly heightened. Um, so we developed a, a bit of a campaign anticipating that possibility and calling for strengthening uh, of the uh, right to refuse unsafe work among uh, among many other things, a series we put together a series of about ten or twelve demands. In fact, of course the the federal government decided that um, they would not force people back into office buildings. Um, and to this day, uh, people are not in office buildings. So uh, that argument and the possibility for a campaign there um, fell through. But part of the campaign, and this goes to the, I, I hope the heart of the question you were asking, part of what we had to talk about um, was the importance of not only um, arguing for and preparing demands that would change the conditions of work for federal public servants, but recognizing not only the logic of solidarity, but the logic of disease, um, we had to formulate demands that would result in major changes um, for all employees who are members of our community, because there's no point in protecting the members of your workplace um, from COVID-19 if you don't also address the members of your community, right? I mean, the logic of the disease is that it, 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 it's not just going to stop at the office door. Um, it's out there in the community. So, you know, that's a kind of an application of the principle of an injury to one is an injury to all. The threat of COVID-19 for one person is a threat of COVID-19 for everybody. Um, and so in that particular case, there was a very clear 
uh, potential for making an argument about the connection between what goes on in the workplace and what goes on in, in wider society. And there are many, many examples of uh, campaigns that can involve people in a workplace reaching out to uh, a section of the broader community beyond the workplace um, in ways that make sense. And part of the, the responsibility of socialists and radicals in the labor movement um, is to precisely make those arguments and draw those links because oftentimes they don't occur spontaneously uh, to people. Um, but once they're articulated, once they're explained, they can be easily grasped and uh, taken up. And that's also important, just to finish, um, because the nature of the struggle in the workplace with its ups and downs means you go through long periods where nothing seems to be happening in the workplace. And in such periods, it's particularly important that if you have a little caucus of radicals or socialists, that you can ensure that they continue to learn and grow and develop their skills and build their confidence by intervening, not just in the workplace that seems to be dead for the moment, but intervening outside the workplace. Um, and so that's one of the ways you can, you can do that. I like um, the idea of having, um, I don't know, I think about like finding your comrades in the workplace, uh, if there are any, and then gathering, making a point to like gather together and keep in touch. And I like the idea of taking, that you don't, you don't just have to um, be, you don't just have to be focused on the issues of your particular workplace with those. If you have a little group of people, you can take that back into the community and apply it to uh, to community issues as well. So, And sometimes in the workplace, you can also, again, it depends on the circumstances and the people you find and the people you work with. Um, but I've been a part of um, socialist study groups in the workplace where people get together once a month and uh, discuss um, theoretical, historical, political issues that sometimes are directly related to what they're doing or experiencing or the nature of the workplace, and sometimes not. You know, there's lots of ways to engage with people in the workplace and to build the relationships that are critical when the opening for the possibility of collective action uh, emerges. Yeah, absolutely. I would say like some of the best political conversations I've had have been with coworkers in the workplace who aren't themselves necessarily that political, but you know, if you have, if you're lucky enough to have a job where you can sort of just, you know, gab with your coworkers a little bit while you're at work, you know, you never know what's going to come up uh, and what <laughs> and what what sort of links or uh, or you know uh, points of solidarity you can you can build. It's just it's fascinating. People love to gossip, you know. You might as well go with your <laughs> boss. <laughs> yeah, gossip is a powerful organizing tool, I I think, I found personally. <laughs> and everyone likes to complain about... Everyone likes to complain. Yeah. At work. Especially yeah, so. at work and about work, yeah.
like a good takeaway is like encourage outside of work Facebook messenger groups and whatnot and just talk <laughs> and gossip and be off of the workplace platforms. <laughs> and also it's really important to recognize the value of the people you work with. Um, it can sometimes take relatively little experience and little effort for somebody to radicalize and become an activist. But for them to sustain that level of involvement, that level of confidence can be incredibly difficult when uh, the campaign doesn't go well or the boss intensifies uh, what they're doing or whatever. And so it's, it's really important that every inch that we gain, we recognize, we uh, build on. Uh, because it is always you lose somebody who has previously been active and previously been um, engaged in trying to make trying to change circumstances in the workplace. So it's very, very important to strengthen relations with them, provide them with the personal support and encouragement that you can um, and uh, and try to make sure that they, uh, that they last so that they are around for the next, uh, the next cycle of the struggle. Yeah, that, that kind of connects to if we do take a long-term view to expand that beyond just thinking about us individually and how we can like actually take a, a like have the long game insight if you want to use that phrasing, but for, for us to, how can we all how can we, who ends up being in the radical, small pockets of radical groups um, within a workplace um, and, and beyond, be able to sustain, to keep, to keep together, being able to fight a long-term battle? Because we will, we will inevitably lose many more times than we win. And, you know, some are great losses, some are minor losses. Um, but I, I like to think of uh, the situation as being akin to um, uh, solve, uh, uh, saving people who are jumping out of a burning building, right? So oftentimes it's the responsibility of the socialists um, when they recognize that things are going badly um, to be the person who's down there with the, you know, with the net, like the fireman who runs around making sure that as people jump out of the building, you catch them rather than allowing them to fall on the concrete and destroy themselves as activists. Because then you have to reinvent the wheel. You have to build. I mean, you're always going to be trying to build new activists and strengthen their confidence and um, contribute to their ability to acquire new skills and so on. But if you keep doing that successfully while always losing people, um, then you know, you can often get the sense that you're not, uh, you're not moving forward. So recognizing the ways in which people get dispirited, um, the reasons why they give up, um, and trying to address that, uh, trying to offset that is, I think, incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you have time for, I have another question. Does anyone else have another question? 
Okay, my question is a bit, maybe a bit on a different level or a different area, um, but just I am curious uh, about your, I guess you're not doing it right now because you're in BC, but um, your radical tour of Ottawa. And if you have any, you, you give radical tours about Ottawa's labor history, for those listening, um, about, because I know nothing about labor history in Ottawa in particular. I'm from Toronto originally. Um, if there's a, a certain episode or something that you think maybe not enough people know about or has some lesson for organizers today or just a favorite story. Uh, yeah, you're right. I uh, Since I left the workplace uh, seven years ago, um, I decided that one of the ways I would try to contribute to the strengthening of the left in my city is to uh, make people a little bit more aware about uh, the history of struggles in the city of Ottawa. And that certainly includes uh, labor history and labor struggles, but also many other kinds of struggles. So I currently have a kind of a standard um, stable of six tours that I do, uh, which cover all sorts of different issues. So one of them, for example, deals with the history of colonialism and indigenous resistance uh, in the city. Um, but in addition to that, quite a few of them deal with different aspects of, of uh, labor history. And of course, the reason for doing that kind of thing is precisely because um, activists often think that they are uh, the first people to encounter a particular problem or a particular issue. And um, unfortunately, there's not that much new under the sun. Often we are reliving the experience of our predecessors, albeit in slightly different ways. Um, and so it can be incredibly valuable uh, to know something about um, the history of the struggle, not only by the labor movement, but uh, by all oppressed groups uh, within a particular area. So I'll give you just one example that's related to something I'm working on at the moment. Um, in Ottawa during World War I and in the immediate aftermath of World War I, um, there was a campaign for a general strike. Winnipeg, of course, is the place where the most famous general strike occurred. Uh, many people aren't aware of the fact that there were general strikes in other cities across the country. Ottawa ultimately didn't have a successful campaign for a general strike. The radicals were defeated in the, in the Labour Council, um, and so the general strike never happened. But in looking at the context for the radicalization of segments of the um, Ottawa working class during the war years, one thing that jumps out that's tremendously important is the fact that just prior to the war in 1912, and again, this will be something that people who are familiar with uh, Manitoba history can relate to. Um, prior to World War I, the Ontario Conservative government decided that they were going to solve their uh, Franco-Ontarian problem by eliminating the right to uh, French language instruction in the schools. So that was the infamous Regulation 17, which sparked a campaign that went on for a number of years. 
And by 1916, so four years later, but now in the middle of the war, and increasingly kind of connected with debates about conscription and whether conscription could be imposed on uh, the people of Quebec and uh, and others, um, the uh, Franco-Ontarian struggle came to a head with mass protests, the occupation of a school, uh, mothers... Uh, uh, Franco-Ontarian mothers in Lower Town in Ottawa uh, defended the school from the attempts by the police to enter uh, by taking their hat pins out and threatening to stick the police with their hat pins. Um, and so through a number of actions that occurred in 1916, um, the Ontario government's rule, um, its regulation against um, French language instruction in elementary and high schools, became inoperable, unenforceable, okay? Now, what's important about that is that uh, 1916 is only about two years before you see, uh, 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 in fact, less than that, maybe a year, year and a half before you see a noticeable shift left in large sections of Ottawa's working class. Um, and there was enormous potential for the labor movement and the Franco-Ontarian community to be joined in their common opposition to the kind of political and economic projects of their rulers during that period of time. But when you look at the history of the resistance to Regulation 17, you find that in fact the labor movement is not involved. It's a French issue. And they don't bother with that. Okay. So that's part of the reason why, and there are many other examples, why the labor movement would have difficulty. Um, the left wing of the labor movement would have difficulty mounting a general strike uh, a couple of years later. So what's the history? All of this history is of tremendous significance to the situation today. Um, two and a half years ago, the Ontario Liberal government was replaced by a Conservative government. The Conservative government began to introduce all kinds of cuts and changes and so on. One of the things they did, as Conservative governments in Ontario have done repeatedly over the years, was they targeted the Franco-Ontarian community. The Franco-Ontarian community, and this in this case, it was specifically around uh, cancellation of a promise to open a French language university. Okay. The Franco-Ontarian community organized collectively and ultimately defeated the Ontario government, the Ford government's plans to cancel that university. And once again, Ottawa's labor movement was largely absent from that struggle, even though Teachers and various other groups were um, organizing kind of outside of the context of that particular issue with the Franco-Ontarian community. So the point I'm making is that a division at the heart of Ottawa's working class that was present 100 years ago still is there. It still needs to be rectified. It still needs to be addressed. And that's part of the continuing uh, weakness of the working class movement in that city. 
And that's part of the reason why it's important to have a bit of a sense of the history of the struggle in a particular place, uh, because those issues often don't go away. They come up again and again, albeit in slightly different forms. So I'll stop there. I, I apologize for going on at such length. Oh, no, that was fantastic. Thank you. That was really good. Yeah, that was great. That was great. And I, I just feel like I want to make the joke to everybody, like, you heard it here first. No, but, <laughs> but it, I mean, like, your points, too, about, like, you keep coming back to the points, or you've made a few times that... You can't predict what happens necessarily, and you can't predict what sort of um, activity is going to be connected to an issue that blows up. And I'm sure when backwards looking at history and seeing how certain conditions ended up weakening the potential for people to come together and fight in a way they could have or needed to, mm -hmm. um, it just connects to that same idea, you know? And then to connect it to today is is super crucial. So uh, it's a great story. Um, I did not think we were going to hear that today, but I'm happy we did. Well, I want to thank you, Brian, for being so generous with your time today and answering all our questions. I feel like we're going to need to have you back at some point. <laughs> uh, maybe we can talk about more about oh. activism in particular. Yeah, My pleasure. Anytime. I hope there's something there that you can use. So we just listened to Brian and had a discussion with Brian and he answered a lot of questions and said a lot of things that were really great food for thought. So now let's have a discussion. And to begin off the discussion here, one thing I, that stood out to me was uh, how a lot of people might find themselves in a workplace where they are, or, or in any situation really, where there's not a high level of activity going on. Um, it might feel like your workplace is dead as far as like dealing with issues, or it might feel like some community organizing initiative you're doing is sort of in a rut of some kind. And there's something Brian was talking about where he was, he both made the points about how it's not really possible to predict where things will go what the next flare up of activity would be, what the next issue that might come um, either in a community context or from management in a workplace that might get a lot of people to, to react to it and take off and not being able to forecast what that will be. And simultaneously connected to that, thinking beyond just the narrow scopes, if you're an eco-socialist organizer, beyond the narrow scopes of just thinking I'm only organizing my workplace, but instead thinking about how you can connect beyond your workplace or beyond the one issue you're in. So I just, I, that stood out to me and I was wondering like, what do people think about that, that kind of feeling or observation that it's simultaneously, you might be caught in a situation which there doesn't seem to be a lot going on, but also you don't know what the next thing will look like that will spark a higher level of activity. It seems like you're between two kind of unknowns. Um, that really relates, but I just thought that might be an interesting thing to, to talk about if people wanted to. 
I think um, something I found is interesting, this is maybe just a part of what you're talking about, Teddy, was the first thing Brian said about Extinction Rebellion, um, not to single them out, but this idea of not, yeah, like a group that's already organized to, to some extent, not being responsive to then like organic activity that that sparks up. Um, and I think just, and even just the expectation that that's going to happen, like really changes the way you do things. Right. Um, and just being flexible and open to that because at the end of the day, you want as many people as possible to your cause, um, and to join the movement. Right. Um, that stood out to me and what really stood out to me, this doesn't really answer your question maybe at all Teddy or your your what you're going for because I really don't know uh kind of what what you do I'm I'm curious about what you do if you're in you know a dead workplace um I, I mean I think it's better to not I think my question is too putting it on someone to answer I, I think what you're going to say is better than just trying to answer my forced question here so what what do you think what what stood out to you that you're going to talk about here um what stood out to me is was the just the learning as a group point being a really important thing because i i think also just in you know the way that you know we have a now we have a leftist podcast so there's a kind of culture right now of, of podcasts and twitter and you know articles and and all that sort of intellectual world that's very you know concerned with having the best ideas or the best take or the you know we have the strategy or we have the way that things work and and being maybe resistant to other things that come up um or even just yeah being kind of I think some people might be worried or or reticent to act because they they think that other people know more or that other people have more experience and that kind of being a limiter for, for action or for organizing. And I think that as long as you're open to, to learning from mistakes and learning from failures, then a, a big takeaway for me would be to not be concerned about maybe not doing it perfect the first time because you're going to have lots of opportunities. Like the struggle is not ending. You're going to have lots of opportunities to, to mess up. Um, and hopefully learn from it or just repeat the the same mistakes a hundred years later. Your your children can also not forge solidarity with Franco Ontarians and mess up their chance. <laughs> um yeah, so that was kind of because I think that was a yeah, a surprising answer to your question about common ground, because I was expecting something more about a value of democracy or a value of solidarity or, or something um, more along those terms, but just the, the learning point um, I think is huge. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's an interesting point. And, and, you know, we find ourselves as eco-socialists trying to put our politics into practice in the here and now at a point where in the level of social struggle is extremely low. And so needing, it's needing to be responsive to what, actually moves is really something that's valuable and being prepared to expect the unexpected and um, being able to, to respond and organizations that can't do that will probably be left behind um, and new ones will have to be created uh, to respond to uh, you know whole new groups of people 
deciding to take collective action and throwing up new questions. And that's worth um, we're thinking about. And I think it's an interesting thing I've experienced that sometimes the way that in community activists or organizing groups, the way people think about strategic planning often is the way they might have been trained to think about it in their workplaces. And then they kind of unconsciously bring this way of thinking about it into the into the activism or organizing work. Um, and it's a very different context, right? Um, it's not that people shouldn't plan in our community uh, activism or, or organizing, but it's very different from the kind of more predictable, stayed, uh, managed rhythms of people's paid workplaces. And I think it's a problem when people just end up reproducing those ways of, of doing things um, in a different kind of a setting and something we need to be aware of in terms of the culture that we sometimes find on the left. Because being we can't predict what's going to happen, but we can at least learn from history enough that we have to be, we need to know that we can be responsive and uh, think about how we can uh, shift when necessary and always be looking uh, to try to build independent mass action, right? Or that's the, that's the, if that's the strategic approach that we as eco-socialists should have, and if people are interested, they could look at the Solidarity Winnipeg website where we have a policy called From Theory to Practice that tries to sketch that out. Um, but you can always try to uh, put that approach into practice, even if it's in very humble little ways, like the way that Brian was talking about doing it in, uh, in workplace organizing. Like a little, you know, pushing for more democracy or pushing for more accountability of, um, or in a union or pushing for people to be uh, broadening the struggle and not just be concerned about workplace issues in a narrow sense. Yeah, I, I really like this topic too. And I think I'm going to think about it for a long time. But I, I also connect it to if you, if you focus on being able to evaluate and learn and adapt and, and, assess what you're doing and plan, it's it's orienting you towards action, right? It's orienting you towards doing things. And it also, it doesn't, it's just like what you described, Posey, about like there being this um, flurry of podcasts that that talk about the ideas, but, you know, it's really, it's it's very also important to have like ideas that are that are contextual and tested and, and evaluated for groups to do together because um, because that's how you you ultimately will start making some change that you need. And by by holding it up as a value to learn from that and making and just like actually scanning whatever you're involved with and saying like, are we evaluating what we're doing or are we not? It it in some ways I think that also like encourages like more people to be able to get involved because you you turn things more concrete when you explain why you do things or you don't do things and you also are willing to try things um and that i think there's a certain like energy to that too that that is actually really needed instead of being another kind of organization that that might limit its willingness to try things and be sort of so burdened with with how terrible things are that there's not a willingness to try anything at all and that doesn't get you anywhere either so yeah that that kind of came to mind <laughs> for me too 
Yeah, and even just thinking, I keep thinking about this this Franco-Ontarian thing, partly because I can just imagine how that would happen again, like that even it would just be a language barrier that like limits your ability to put solidarity in action, even if like on paper, that's what your politics are. Like there's so many things at any given moment that you could be working on as a, in your union or as a small group like ours that, you know, given the, the choice between, you know, participating in some other movement or some other campaign or action, just being like, ah, I don't know the language as well, or it's not, you know, I don't feel comfortable in this, in this group as much or with this struggle as much because it's not what I know. Um, that that has to be something to also evaluate of like what's keeping what's keeping you from doing certain things, not just why you choose to do the certain things you do as a group or as an individual. Yeah. Maybe just to pick up on that example again, um, I think it's also a case where, I mean, of course, a lot of union activists are very busy trying to fight the latest thing coming at them from the boss and so on, which is sometimes it makes it difficult for them to make time for other things. But there's also a, a, a narrow sense of what unions should do, right? And what counts as a union issue. And so I think as socialists in, in unions, to always be uh, resisting that and you know, pushing unions to be involved in opposition to all forms of injustice um, in society and not just narrowly defined workplace issues um, is something that uh, is worth bearing in mind. Yeah, an injury to one is an injury to all. That's Brian said that, and Solidarity Winnipeg has said that at times too. It's it's such a simple phrase, but it really is encapsulates uh, the right direction, I think. Yeah, especially in the example he gave about the pandemic, right? Of um, that being something that you know, I think a lot of us probably thought more at the beginning. Of of the pandemic, there was going to be maybe more strikes, like there obviously have been um, strikes and and labor organizing around the pandemic. But that that is like a perfect example of you know if anyone if anyone has the virus, then it becomes you know a community issue, um, which is true of all things. But that it's a a pretty you know one to one. The metaphor is reality. <laughs> Um, situation with with COVID-19. Another thing that stood out to me was just the emphasis on how eco-socialists, when they're involved in organizing and other campaigns and activity, whether it's in the workplace, in the community, or wherever, to think about it in a really long-term kind of a way. We know that eco-socialism a system that's like not capitalism and it's just radically democratic, like uh, like all the things we want in a post-capitalist, uh, in a post-revolutionary context is a is a faraway place. It's it's it is a long-term thing. It's a long and faraway vision. Um, but I still think that even though it's easy to say that, I know that it was a good reminder to hear the keeping like our activities and whatever we're involved with with a long-term focus too um and especially with attention to offsetting and preemptively um meeting the the chance for people to burn out and you know if you're working on a campaign and it doesn't go well and thinking about like the radicals who might get involved with you in that and 
or even for yourself, really. So I, I thought that was something else that was like a good message to to hear, especially when we we all want things to get better. Um, but it's it's a long term process, and how you actually sustain that is is a very important thing to think about. Yeah, and I like that he that Brian talked about it in terms of um, collectivity as well. Of that, it's not just about sustaining yourself; it's about sustaining the group and how and how we can all best like support each other into keeping keeping us all sane <laughs> and and in it for as um, for the long haul. I really liked that way of thinking about it. Yeah, because there's a constant process of political attrition that we experience, right? Um, because we have a vision of change that goes so far beyond what we what we're experiencing. It can just seem very hard to to maintain that and so many things that can grind people down and in different ways and so trying to work with other people in a way that builds up some resistance to that you know um drawing on what we can learn from history what we can learn by you know distilling the lessons of history as theory and using that to analyze the present and trying to to generalize those things to share those ideas and doing that in a way that we're we're building political relationships with people um i think it's good to think about yeah i got one other thing too that comes to mind and it actually is a question that maybe we could answer or maybe we don't need to but i really liked how brian was talking about with the 2011 campaign um when he's describing the way the workers were pitted against each other for half the jobs um how there was connected to what you said david about the you know a narrow idea about what a union um does or what counts as union work well in this case it was like a narrow idea of what kind of unity or solidarity was possible um that the, the union was envisioning and brian talked about how um working to build solidarity between two groups of people who are presented as only having interests in opposition to each other and that idea of breaking down the apparent uh barriers that don't allow for solidarity and instead actually building solidarity. That's a theme, an idea we've talked about in different educationals within Solidarity Winnipeg. Like that, this is not the first time we're hearing it, but it was nice to hear that concrete example of that. So the question that comes out of that for me is how does one actually go about doing it? It's a huge question, but I wonder like if it was as much as um, simply having, you know, pre-existing or ad hoc radical folks come together and and articulate a statement or something like that and then from there invite people to have a discussion and and point out that common ground because i i think it's very important to to keep chipping away at those kinds of barriers to solidarity and it's a real contribution to hear a real life example of, of doing that in such a concrete way so it's an open question like if anyone has thoughts about how to do that but but the main thing I want to emphasize um, is just like, I thought that was a very important point. And yeah, I was, I was so happy to hear it. You know, it brings up for me a very, very different example of solidarity being built, which happened recently um, in that uh, event that happened in, uh, in the, the far north um, with the uh, miners um, who, uh, and I, I cannot remember, unfortunately, off the top of my head, with the name of the community, but um, you have these miners uh, in a place where um, 
there was an Inuit blockade, right? Of um, oh, thank you, it was Pond Inlet, um, and uh, you know, being able unable to leave the community because of this um, blockade against the expansion of mining, which was a, a great um, struggle that was being conducted, and to have these miners, a significant minority of them, sign on to a statement saying that they supported this indigenous struggle and the opposition to the uh, expansion of the extraction. Um, you know, that's was a fantastic little example of, of solidarity. And it kind of blew away a lot of the ideas that you sometimes run into that, that say that kind of solidarity between workers in an extractive industry and land defenders or people resisting the extractive industry is impossible. And what, it's, what that example said to me, just like the example that Brian talked about, is that it's, it's a political question. It's about, uh, you know, the politics of those um, dissident miners who could see that their interests were, in fact, you know, um, in harmony with those of the people opposing the, uh, the expansion of the extraction. Just like those federal government workers who could recognize the people in Category 7 and Category 8 actually had the same interests. So the starting point is a, is a politics that recognizes, you know, who's on what side where you can actually see the class relationship in society and, and see who's on, on what side and where you can then build uh, solidarity because people's interests are actually in common, uh, even if they have been told that uh, they're fundamentally opposed to each other or that there's nothing the union can do about it. So again, the this, this starting point is having the politics that sees where you can build solidarity and where you can't. Um, and there's nothing that says you can't build solidarity between two groups of workers who are slotted into two different categories or two different bargaining units may be really difficult, but doesn't mean it can't be done. And just like it's not impossible, just difficult to build solidarity between workers in an extractive industry and people uh, defending the land against the, the damage being done by the corporation. Um, but you need to have politics that uh, you know, can identify where you have the potential for, for solidarity, and then you can figure out in the particular place where you are, what can you do about it? Mm -hmm. let, let me jump in there for a sec. And for me, like the main takeaway that I'll probably get from, from what Brian was saying is looking for any points of commonality to accentuate like shared material interests between two separate groups of, of people to accentuate that the interests of the working class are the the material interests of the working class are the material interests of uh, of oppressed groups um, that we're all tied into it together. That there is no the only barriers between you know between groups of people are the ones that like are the ones that are managers or or the the, the capital elite like create for us. Um, and if there are if there are separations between groups within the working class and oppressed people, it's only because we haven't bridged those gaps yet. Um, but that's the work that needs to be done: is building those points of commonality between realizing that labor issues are community issues, um, social issues are labor issues. Our community issues there it's all the same thing all different versions of the same type of like capitalist oppression and then once we realize that uh getting together and building 
building those individual linkages between people one by one and and those networks networks of radicals that spill that can start within the workplace or building networks of radicals within social community groups you know cuz there's cuz there's conflicts within both those places within workplaces within within community organizing groups and you need to find the people that are going to realize that uh, that you need to band together to um, to build those relationships everywhere. So I don't know. <laughs> those are just so, some some neural networks connecting in my own brain. So yeah, I think it's important on. to keep your third your socialist third eye wide open for whenever those. You know, they try, to, they try to tear us apart because they always do. Like, I remember this summer, a National Post or Globe and Mail or whatever op-ed that was like, Black Lives Matter protests in Canada are unfair to Indigenous people because Indigenous people struggled and it makes their struggle less real than the struggle of, of Black people. And it was like, what? Like... Really? But, you know, it just continuously happens that those those divisions are going to be also parade themselves as like heady, intellectual, nuanced takes to say that, oh, well, what about this group? It's unfair if this other group is asking for something because this group has it worse or this group is we're going to create this false opposition, um, which, you know, drives me crazy. So it's got to be. <laughs> constantly vigilant i guess yeah in injury to one is an injury to all like should just get that like tattooed on all our foreheads <laughs> as the on your eyelids whenever you close your and, eyes that's what you see <laughs> like yes. if you could keep that the one thing that you just have to remember every time all the time <laughs> don't ever not think of it <laughs> i mean yeah ideas are powerful right like it's 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 a powerful idea and really flies in the face of what the dominant message is in so many spaces. I want to just read a couple of lines from that statement because I just it's such a powerful statement and it was uh, the Baffinland mine um, in Nunavut and I don't see exactly where it is when I'm quickly scanning this article on CBC. But there's a couple of lines. It's a longer statement. If you look up um, workers' pen open letter to protesters, say the support Inuit, you'll find the letter, the art, the statement on CBC. Um, but anyway, like just a couple of lines that really emphasize an injury one to an injury an injury to all, and the solidarity between workers and pushing back against these divisions is. Um, you know, things like this, like our managers have cautioned us that speaking out about this publicly will likely result in termination. So this letter must remain anonymous. We are writing to express our full support for the efforts, means and goals of your protests. We do not pretend to represent the views of the majority of Baffinland workers, but we do represent a sizable minority. And then it says here, you've said, I'm skipping ahead, you said that it's not the workers you are upset with, but the Baffinland executives and we would like to say that our support is also not with our superiors in the company but with you 
On many occasions, we've looked around at the massive piles of iron ore surrounded by miles of rusted snow, the colossal diesel tanks, and the clouds of exhaust fumes that hang above the camp and thought, what the hell are we doing here? We firmly believe that the company should listen to your demands and give you what you want, though even that will likely not be enough. With the horrible history that has taken place in this country and the ways in which your voices were silenced in the process, what could be enough? It's such a strong statement. Like, there's more in it, but there's there's really the clear idea there of connecting whose whose interests are on the same side and who is in opposition. So it's it's really heartening to see that even today.